Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Before we start, just a quick shout out. Thank you, Robin, for increasing your Patreon donation. We appreciate it. On with the show. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week's episode is a sponsored one, courtesy of Myrta. Thank you, Myrta. Uh, Thank you. She, she wrote to us, hello. Hello. <laughs> welcome I, to The Dirt. <laughs> I really enjoy your podcast. And after listening to your episode about the Samnites, Umbrian Etruscans, I thought, well, I'd love to hear more about the lesser known people groups from classical antiquity. Where I live used to be inhabited by Illyrian tribes, specifically the Liborni. Little is known about Illyrians, despite the fact that this place is full of remains of their settlements and that some places, including my city, have Illyrian names whose meanings have been lost. Guess what? There is still little known about Illyrians. Well, we will do our best, Myrta, and we will also do our best with pronunciations of place names, but hopefully mm-hmm. we can we won't be held to like quite as high a standard if they're Illyrian names. And they're dead languages. Yeah. I I don't know if there are any Illyrians listening. Probably not. All right. Well, the name Illyrians suggests that there's some kind of unified cultural identity, but not so much. Originally, the Greeks appear to have used this name to indicate the people living to the northwest of Macedonia in what is now called Albania. Later, this name was applied to all tribes living in the northwest. The Dalmatians... And Livernians, (laughs) for example, were living along the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea in what is today Croatia, while others were living in the interior up to the River Danube. Examples of this wider use of the expression can be found in Herodotus' histories and Appian's Illyrian Wars. Sounds like a great saga. But we're not going to be getting into those because... um, you all know how we feel, especially I feel, about endless military histories. So yeah. we'll skip that part. Uh, when the Romans conquered this area, they called it Illyricum, which they divided into several provinces, Pannonia, Dalmatia, and Epirus. Writing in the early 70s of the first century CE, the Roman author Pliny the Elder discerned Illyrians in the northeast region and real Illyrians in the south. <laughs> like Illyrians light up north or something. In the 4th century CE, the word Illyricum referred to a diocese that covered modern Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, and western Hungary. To sum it all up, Illyricum has had several meanings and it comes as no surprise that there was little that united the inhabitants of this area. They never identified themselves as Illyrians, nor were they unified under one particular cultural umbrella. And that includes cosmology and religious practices. As pagans, Illyrians believed in supernatural powers and they attributed to the deities qualities that were reflected in everyday life, health and disease, natural abundance and natural disaster. A number of Illyrian toponyms and anthroponyms derived from animal names and 
reflected the beliefs in animals as mythological ancestors and protectors. The serpent was one of the most important animal totems. The rich spectrum in religious beliefs and burial rituals that emerged in Illyria, especially during the Roman period, may reflect the variation in cultural identities in this region. We'll get into religion a little bit later on. Yeah. So how do we know all this? Well, archaeology. In 2018, a joint team of Polish and Albanian archaeologists uncovered part of a massive city under a grassy hill near the town of Skodra. They determined that the site was likely the location of the lost city of Bassania. The team uncovered what looks like a surprisingly large town with defensive walls around three meters thick and built in a Hellenistic style. A pretty good clue that this was, at one time, a large and important location, meriting military protection. The thick walls also surrounded a town covering about 20 hectares of land, which is, you know, 0.2 square kilometers, if that's helpful to you, um, implying a very large settlement. The archaeologists reported that the site looked uninteresting at first glance, but had proven to be very promising. Abandoned underground cities often reveal much better preserved structures than those above ground, which would have been rebuilt continuously over the centuries. Cole Shibani, a local who accompanied the archaeologist during the dig, says local people knew the place only as the Stone Serpent. Due to a serpent-shaped path that meandered up the hill, none of them imagined that an ancient town or city lay hidden under the ground. A few small excavations had been carried out at the site in the, back in the 1980s when ancient tombs were discovered, but the search went on no further. Archaeologists think the lost city may be the same one that classical sources referred to as Bassania, Bexena, or Pexena. Bassania appears in Livy's History of Rome during the chapters on the Roman-Illyrian Wars. According to Livy, the Illyrian king Gintius assembled an army of 15,000 men at Lissus and marched on Bassania, which was five miles from Lissus, and was in alliance with the Romans. The Roman general Appius Claudius then marched into Illyria where, quote, where his principal object was raising the siege of Bassania, Bassania, Livy said. The Illyrian Wars ended in 168 BCE with a victory of the Romans. It is believed that Bassania was later destroyed by a Roman army under Octavian Augustus in the first century CE. Um, Sounds like sure was part of the Pax Romana that he he brought about. Uh, This tracks with artifacts found at the site. Ancient coins and portions of ceramic artifacts recovered near the walls date back to the 4th to the 1st century BCE, providing further confirmation of the age of the city. Yeah, so there was a tantalizingly small amount of evidence available on excavations and materials related to the Illyrians. So what, you know, what we have, we will link in the show notes. But as Myrta mentioned uh, in the email up top, uh, there's, there's just it like with the the Samnites. There's not a lot of stuff, but we will talk about what there is. And Myrta particularly mentioned the Liburnians, so I thought we'd focus on them for a bit. I found a lot of great sources to pull from, all of which will be linked in the show notes, including a hefty master's thesis by Elena Begonia, titled "Bones, Burials, and the Riddle of Truth: Colon, Reconstructing the Past Through What Has Been Left Behind." So I'm going to be quoting from that and other sources here. Like Amber said uh, a little while ago, the the Liburnians are up um, on the Adriatic, so they're coastal. Quote, Material evidence can trace the Illyrians in modern-day Dalmatia back to as early as the Copper Age. 
The same evidence has shown that Liburnian culture has most likely been around since the late Bronze Age. It is said that Liburnia's borders reached all the way up to the Istrian Peninsula and as far down as the island of Corfu, which they apparently lost in the 8th century BCE when the Corinthians colonized the island for their own. They controlled much of the Adriatic, but as for the mainland, they mainly had consistent control over the coastline and the county that is today known as Zadar, but known to the Liburnians as Yader or Jadera in Latin and Dalmatian, respectively. So I guess it would be Yadera. Liburnia was a seagoing nation. In fact, once they got folded into the Roman Empire, their shipbuilding technology helped to improve the Roman fleets with a new type of warship, the Liburnian. It was a destroyer, a light, fast, highly maneuverable vessel, ideal for pursuit of pirates or quick communications. A piratical tribe of the Yugoslav coast had invented it, and the Romans found it useful enough to take over as a standard unit. The Liburnian achieved such popularity in the Roman navy that the term eventually came to mean warship in general. And we'll have a link to an image of a relief carving of one of these ships. Um, and Amber, if you want to click on it, it's linked right there to the side. I really like this one because it looks like a ship that's crewed by little beans with arms and legs, but I'm sure they were very fearsome. Oh, clicked on the wrong thing. Nope, no beans there. Oh, look at that. Oh, like the little fetuses. Yeah, they do look like little human little, fetuses. Little embryos. Yeah, it's look. It's like if a human fetus was drawn by Keith Haring. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, that that's a weird thing to put in your in your minds, listeners. But there it is. That's what it looks like. So, for a look at some Liburnian material culture, we'll have a link to a gallery from excavations at the site of Nadine Gradina, a large hill fort complex. I'm pretty sure Gradina means fort. Um, Nadine Gradina was an economic, cultural, and administrative center of one of the largest Liburnian territories. By the early first millennium CE, Nadine Gradina was transformed into a formal Roman municipium, municipium, a municipal mm -hmm. province, but it appears to have declined during late antiquity. To date, the settlement of Nadine Gradina is poorly understood, even though it's, it's being excavated still. Still in the works. Although a number of objects had been recovered from the site since the 19th century, a greater amount of material was discovered in 1968, when on two occasions, researchers excavated two extremely rich Hellenistic graves. Initial test excavations and survey provided a general picture of the site, but many questions remain due to the small sample of excavations performed. The material itself includes a lot of pottery. Um, that's interesting because it's not wheel-thrown pottery. It's just hand-shaped. Some weapons and jewelry. Lots of fibulae, so uh, those cloak pins that we've mentioned before. Actually, when we were talking about the Samnites, it's really typical of, of Roman areas, so it's not a surprise if this was a Roman-occupied province. And most of that material comes from graves within the necropolis of the city. So it looks like there is quite a bit left to learn about the Liburnians. And so we've got more Illyrian stuff to talk about, but let's take a quick ad break first. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Oh, great. Glad you left me some some Greek in here. <laughs> I left you some nerdy nerd stuff. <laughs> I hope you're excited. Yeah, I am. Um, so the More Center Archaeology, please. Yes, yes. Well, coming right up. Uh, the Center for Archaeology of Montenegro began a series of rescue excavations in the ancient city of Doclea near Podgorica, the capital city of Montenegro, after an ancient villa was destroyed during the construction of a railway line, which is mm. one way to find things. During the course of the excavations, the foundations of several temples were found, evidently belonging to the Illyrian Docleati tribe on whose territory the city was built. It's interesting that this would be a cluster of temples because this site also eventually became an important site in the early Christian diocese of the 5th through 10th century CE. We haven't really talked about that much, but sort of the repeated use of sites that people think of as sacred. I always think that's really interesting. Well, and sometimes it's... Sometimes it's sort of the vibe of a place, and then sometimes it's just part of, like, conquest. Part of taking over. Yeah. 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 Which is something mm-hmm. that the the spread of Christianity definitely did, where they're like, yeah. can't worship your old gods if we put in ours. Yeah, that I find less interesting. It's the first <laughs> thing that you said that I find interesting, like places that feel special. Yeah. Um, yeah. Numinous spaces. Numinous. Yeah, there's a there's a placiness to them. They're full of Newman. Yeah. According to the archaeologists, coins... Oh, boy. Coins. Oh, boy. No. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> coins found at the site <laughs> date it to the reign of the Illyrian king Bolaios and Queen Tuta of the RDI. Yeah, so many vowels. RDI tribe. RDI. RDI. Who ruled in the mid-2nd century BCE. In Roman times, the city of Docleo was strategically situated on near the crossings of several main roads on a plateau bordered on three sides by rivers. Pretty cush yeah. spot. It's good location. Um, we know a bit about King ba- uh, Baleos, largely because he minted coins in his own name. Oh boy, it's coin time. No, okay. So I, <laughs> I, I, I really heavily edited the coin stuff so that it wasn't too cumbersome. Yeah, but also something. So the study of coins is uh, numismatics. Numismatics. And so one thing, if you ever are in a position to learn about numismatic evidence for things, is you quickly see that numismaticists, coin folk, go, go off. <laughs> <laughs> they well they are <laughs> so thank you for, for bearing it down so everybody strap in because we are in for some coin nerd stuff the one coin nerd yeah. listening to this so, podcast is like finally <laughs> so yeah so that's something that like i find numismatics extremely boring but it's so important like you can learn so much about so many yeah. things so that's sort of like 
coins for me is probably how most other people who do archaeology feel about ceramics. And <laughs> I like, don't think that's true. I, I, <laughs> I, I think find more people more than boring. you think feel like you do about ceramics. I'm just not one of them. But so it's something where it's just like, ah, okay. <laughs> so let's go. go. Let's go. Let's go. Belios, so, that guy. So his coins with the long legend so it's the thing that's minted on the edge of it Basileus Balau of like of of king Balaios uh, cool were minted in uh Hryzone, while the coins with the short legend Balau and the head of king Balaios uh which is of a different type and are older were minted in Pharos it's cool in some yep. cases, it is possible to observe that Balaios coins were struck on the older Pharaoh specimens. Cool. cool yeah, cool. they were updated. They got a new yeah. new front. Um, the what, obverse? Yeah, the, yes. Okay. Sorry. Great. Yes, um, the obverse is the front part. The distribution of his coinage indicates that they were concentrated in the central Dalmatian area, while a large number of different dyes that could have been identified to date indicates a long minting of his coins. Numismatic evidence shows that Balaios reigned for quite a lengthy time. Mm -hmm. His coins are also frequently found in Italy, which confirms the trade contacts between both Adriatic coasts. Although, as we learned from Sahara, coins travel, Dirk. boy. (laughs) On the obverse of the coins, a bust of the king facing left to right is depicted, while on the reverse... Artemis, advancing or standing, is represented with or without a torch, sometimes carrying one or two spears, surrounded by either the long or short legend. Most of these <laughs> I'd like to think that sorry, I'd like to think that she's on some, she's represented with a torch and carrying two spears. Yeah, just, just like, like, uh, like uh, in her arms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> juggling them. Most of these coins are bronze. Some are silver. The ones with the long legend are always silver. Their weight corresponds to a Roman coin known as the Victorium. It is significant the Balaios also had silver coins minted, which indicates his wealth and power. Not everybody got silver. So once Doclea was under Roman supervision, around the third (laughs) century... Spin. Around the third century CE, the Romans enforced the city's protection through mighty two and a half meter thick walls, towers, battlements, and fortified bridges across the rivers. The city itself was built according to the classical urban grid plan with a typically square shaped forum with colonnaded porticos that run the length of the space at its heart. The city was sacked by the Ostrogoths at the end of the fifth century CE. Just hordes of goth ostriches. Oh, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) let's talk a little now about some of the illyrian religions i say a little because the religious beliefs and practices of the various groups encompassed by the term illyrian aren't all that well understood but archaeological material has provided some clues and if this is something you are interested in and you want to take a deep deep dive into it i recommend that you start with the bibliography of the wikipedia page on illyrian religion there is enough there to keep you going for a quite a while so parts of illyrian gods and beliefs ultimately stem from the proto-indo-european mythology which we have talked about before alongside the thracian and dacian beliefs Thracians and Dacians. It constitutes part of the Paleo-Balkan mythologies. 
Modern Albanian culture preserves some traces of Illyrian religious symbolism, and ancient Illyrian religion is most likely one of the underlying sources from which Albanian folk beliefs arose. We're going to talk towards the end about connections between the Illyrians and Albanians and other groups in the Balkan areas and sort of nationalism and um, the use of archaeological material to 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 write nationalistic stories so stay tuned for that the following is from a source written in 1974 by uh stipchevitz quote cults from the neolithic tradition especially those that were associated with the fertility of the earth and with agriculture in general continued to be practiced throughout the bronze age and at the beginning of the iron age those traditions included the cult of the earth mother the cult of the sun and the cult of the serpent in the early Iron Age, the Illyrian art was geometric and non-representational with the combination of concentric circles, rhomboids, triangles, and broken lines. It was a severe type of art, devoid of fantasy, intended for farmers and cattle breeders or warriors. Archaeological evidence demonstrates the existence of two main cults based upon two roughly defined geographic criteria. The cult of the serpent appears to have occurred principally in the southern regions of Illyria, with the, with the real Illyrians. Yeah while the waterfowl and solar symbols predominated in the north. The serpent as the symbol of fertility, protector of the hearth, and a chthonic animal could also be connected with the cult of the sun. So, Amber, I yeah. seem to remember in undergrad that you really enjoyed thinking about chthonic oh, deities and things. Sure do. Can you tell do. me, <laughs> first of all, can you tell me what chthonic means? Yeah. And then also, can you tell me what would be in a cocktail called a gin and chthonic? Yeah. Yeah, I can do both of this for you. So, um, chthonic is, it comes from the Greek word chthonos, which means earth, like, like the earth, sort of not like, like not like, like the soil, not like dirt, or, not like the planet, no. but like the earth, like sort of the ground beneath you. Okay. Um, and so a chthon, a chthonic de deity is, or a chthonic being is something that originates from inside the earth. And those are super special uh, because they are, they can occupy multiple planes because, mm -hmm. so a serpent would be a chthonic being because it, it, you know, they, they nest in the ground, they come out of the ground, they kind of disappear into it. And they are sort of go-betweens between the earth, like the, the, this plane and the mm -hmm. underworld, like the netherworld, yeah. rather, like sort of the unseen world. And so things that can go back and forth between the netherworld, which is like where the dead are, and um, the the mortal world are like super powerful. And yeah. um, so snakes are often very important mythologically yeah. for that reason. And um, so Chthonos is the, uh, so that's spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird, um, it's a difficult set of consonants to get your mouth around. Yeah. Chthonic. Um, and um, so Cthulhu from Lovecraft yeah. is yep. um, that being's name deliberately echoes Chthonos. And like Lovecraft sort of like, made that obvious in one of his stories but also duh uh but yeah that that high theta like combo of letters mm. shows up not never in greek words and every time i'm just like oh come on <laughs> is one of them i think 
Fishies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ichthyos is, yeah, there's one. Okay. Um, but yeah, as for a gin and chthonic, I'm thinking <laughs> um, a garlic scape. Oh. Because it's, yeah. because it's sort of herbaceous, but it's snaky. Uh-huh. I think that it does escape or does garlic. Is that a, is that one of those herbs or plants that the Greeks thought had? No, parsley. Parsley is, can, can we put some parsley, splash some parsley bitters in there? Can you finish that sentence? What's the thought yeah, about sorry. parsley? I had like six different thoughts in my head. I'm so sleepy. Parsley was not something the Greeks used culinarily because it often grew around grave sites, I guess. Ah. And so it was viewed as kind of in as much as a snake is a chthonic animal, I guess a parsley is a chthonic herb. Or it was seen as like a plant sort of belonging to the dead. Um, and so it wasn't really used as a food plant. But in that respect, I think we could incorporate parsley in some in some way into a gin and chthonic. Yeah, I like I like herby cocktails. And so I thought that mm. a, a garlic scape would be a really nice sort of accent. Kind of like around. a Bloody Mary kind of thing, but without the tomato. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to be like, um, this podcast will kill you and start doing a cocktail for every episode, but could be fun. Okay, so moving on. Many of the symbols found throughout Illyria were associated with the sun, suggesting that sun worship was a cult common to Illyrian tribes, and in fact, most people around then. The solar deity was depicted as an animal figure, the likes of birds, serpents, and horses, or represented geometrically as a spiral, a concentric circle, or a swastika. The latter, moving clockwise, and then this this article included, helpfully, a picture of a swastika oh, thank moving you. clockwise. Yeah, yeah, I forgot what this looked like. Portrayed solar movement. Waterfowls are among the most frequent solar symbols of the Illyrians, especially in the north. I was not aware that a waterfowl was a particularly solar being, but I, I enjoy that. I wonder if it um, has anything to do with like migratory patterns and things. Yeah, they fly across. Oh, you mean going from, well, they go north-south, not really east-west. Uh, well, no, but, no, like their arrival and stuff. Oh, Like uh, when yeah, they arrive. Time. I see, I see. And, like, yeah. I wonder if it's something like that. If it's especially in the north, then the arrival of waterfowl, meaning that it's, it's like, thank God it's springtime. Yeah, I can see that. This is just um, speculation on my part. But after yeah. the like talking about like the bird, the bird cult, the birdman cult in Rapa Nui. Oh, yeah. And yeah. sort of like That's how right. like, oh, when you put it that way, duh, of like the the birds arriving and heralding sort yeah. of a change and in seasons. Means, yeah. Yeah. That totally makes yeah. sense. Uh, one way or the other. There's no way to know, but I like it. Thank you. A great number of pendants with waterfowl shapes have been found in the Glasenak Plateau in the regions of the Iapodes in Lika in Liburnia, and in the Illyrian regions of present-day Albania and North Macedonia. Evidence of a similar widespread cult of the sun among Thracians suggests a common ancient Balkan religious practice. Maybe. Archaeological findings have shown that Illyrians and Thracians practiced ritual sacrifices to the sun in round temples built in high places. Among Illyrians, the deer was an important sun symbol and was a main sacrificial animal offered to the sun. And again, the, um, this part, the deer sacrifice part, was from a reference to an article that was written in Albanian. So unfortunately, I don't have much more detail there um, to corroborate that, but that is what that part said. The serpent cult was widespread among Illyrians, especially in the south. The image of the serpent was a symbol of potency and fertility and the protector of the domestic hearth. Oh, little protector snake. 
This mystic animal was connected with the cult of the ancestors and with the magical religious complex of the fertility of the earth and of the woman. The Illyrian cult of the serpent is documented in ancient sources. An example is the the myth of Cadmus and his wife Harmonia, who, having come to the Illyrians and died in their homeland, continued to live after their death in the form of serpents. Their son, Illyrios, the eponymous hero of the Illyrian lineage, also had the form of a serpent, and as such, he can be considered the supreme totem of the Illyrians. So like I said, based on all of the citations that were on that Wikipedia page, there's a lot more on Illyrian religion, but we will leave it there for now. Let's take one more quick ad break and then wrap things up by talking about the legacy of the Illyrians and complications with that. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right. It is time for politics. Yes. Wait, no, come back. Yes. <laughs> yes. First coins, now politics. Oh, yes. Um, so this is this is actually like something that's really important and something that we've touched on before. In this case, we're pulling from an article by Maya Gori titled, Who are the Illyrians? The Use and Abuse of Archaeology in the Construction of National and Transnational Identities in the Southwestern Balkans. And before we get into it, we should provide a caveat that this article is from 2012. It is now 2020. And the political climate and national identity construction discussed in this article is effectively frozen in time in 2012 and might not exactly reflect what things are like in the Balkan states today in 2020. Now, Yep. That said, this is still a really good example of a topic that intersects with archaeology everywhere in the world. So it's worth sharing here. Yeah. So archaeology is a discipline that lends itself well to being used and misused as a tool to foster the feelings of belonging and continuity that are at the base of the national identity building process. The Physicality of archaeology gives an added sense of material reality to these emotions. Indeed, the archaeological record is assumed to provide tangible proof of the past, which can be conceived and interpreted as a physical representation of the concept of identity. Do you want me to throw the, in some examples? No, well, because <laughs> I could think of one. What's what's that, the one that you can that, think of? That really bothers me. And it's, well, I mean, who am I to judge? But but I am judging because okay. it's um, the appropriation of Viking culture. By white supremacists. Ah, white, yeah. And by saying, like, your ancestors are watching, that mm, kind of mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the identity you know, Europa folks and the like. Yeah, and like posing by runestones with rifles and stuff. It's just like, okay. Uh, that's not, yeah. Yeah, there's one. It's problematic. That's one. Yeah. That's a good one. That's one. 
Um, well, it's not a good one, but no, that's that's a, that's a good example. Yeah. Um, well, we've we talked a bit about. I don't think that we necessarily got into it, but back when we um, discussed um, Angkor Wat, mm-hmm. the um, Khmer identity, yeah, and and how Angkor Wat is sort of brought into that. I mean, you got kind of in in Iran, you've got the Persian identity. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, like the mm-hmm. the Persian ethnogenesis, like where you have mm-hmm. Iranianness and Persianness with the Achaemenid state. Yeah, and it has to do with a lot of things, but it has to do with kind of establishing legitimacy of of your people, Mm -hmm. you know, by saying, like, we can tie ourselves to artifacts that show that our people have been on this land for however, you know, however many millennia. And sometimes that gets uh, used for unfortunate political purposes. Yeah. And then the thing that I thought of specifically around, like, politics and political things is the image of the fascies. Yeah. Um, and so the fascies is a, it's a... Fasces. The fa- yeah, the, the fasces. It, so in, in Latin, it's the fasces. And it's a... Um, bundle of sticks. It's a bundle of sticks. Yeah, because the individually the sticks can be broken, but if you bind the sticks and together, like, you are you are strong and you can beat things. Um, and so that's something... <laughs> When I first when I first learned about that, I I did that. I because I, I was you know a little nerd, and I learned about that when I was reading about Roman stuff when I was like eight or nine or something. Went to the yard, got a bunch of sticks. I was like, yes, I can break this stick. Huh? I really can't break this bundle of sticks. Wow, Romans. Yeah. And then like your next thought was like, let's found an authoritarian state. So it so it appears um, it appears in like early Roman and like Roman Republican iconography, but mm-hmm. it was adopted by Mussolini's fascist party. So that's the fascist party's name comes from the Fasces from the the fascist. Yeah, and the the salute the well the Nazi salute, what's now known as the Nazi salute, mm-hmm. comes from a depiction of a Roman salute as well, along the yeah. same vein. Okay, yeah. Well, I just like focusing on the the fast kiss um yes like it's it's something that appears in um american iconography too mm-hmm. um it's behind i think it's Isn't in the, the senate eagle holding one? Oh no I, the eagles on... hold some arrows i think oh okay but but yeah it's it's depicted in i think the, the seal of the senate wherever the state of the union address is delivered yeah so that's something that like shows up a lot because it's it's a powerful image that can be used yeah. for sort of and a powerful a, a sense of like unification but also sort of can be quite statist mm-hmm. back to the balkans the present-day balkan nations have complex and twisted historical backgrounds and unstable political situations in 2012 uh, for this reason <laughs> the sense of belonging to a group is expressed on cultural rather than political bases Indeed, in the southwestern Balkans, archaeology matters in identity issues. The materiality and practice of archaeology in this region is inextricably linked to the political and cultural reality of each country and has a strong impact on society. The question of Illyrian ethnogenesis represents a particular identity issue that has had and still has strong direct political repercussions for the southwestern Balkans. In 2012. Yeah. And so an ethnogenesis, like it. The meaning of ethnogenesis is like the emergence of a, uh, of a discrete people. and concrete ethnic identity. 
Mm-hmm. The Illyrian discourse was used to construct Albanian national identity, mainly in opposition to the Slavs of Yugoslavia, during the communist regime and late, and lately to support Kosovo's claims for independence. Its use and misuse in the national Albanian narrative survived the communist era and, with some minor differences, has been utilized by the present democratic Albanian state and by the Albanian minorities pre- present in neighboring states. The concept of ethnicity is in dissolubly linked to the process of construction of a collective identity in national states. Speculations on the origins of ethnic distinctiveness are an obliged passage for each discourse that wants to foster or create the self-perception of a group as ethnically distinct from others. That got a little academic-y yeah, there. That's a, it's so let's, a little, little let's kind of go back and translate, huh? Yeah. So it's basically as a group asserts its sort of political identity and its political um, separateness, pulling from historical whatever is part of that process, is part of not only establishing legitimacy for yourself as, as this separate political entity, but also othering yourself by saying, we're not that, mm-hmm. or we are this, but not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's also a, a a negative construction by asserting what you are. You are at the same time asserting what you are not. Yeah. Um, so the Iron Age was one of the most popular periods utilized in the identity construction processes of a number of European and Balkan states. This epic was depicted and evoked as the golden age of each nation, a time when heroic and uh, primogenial society, characterized by exceptional cultural, technological, and social achievements, laid the foundations for a present-day ethnic group. The Iron Age in Albania is an epoch during which militaristic chieftains and more complex social realities emerged, and it is hardly deniable that a self-awareness of many communities existed. However, what is very hard to prove is that the names and the connotations that we use today to describe these societies can actually reflect the entities of the past. Even less concrete scientifically is the existence of an essence characteristic of a people, call it ethnic identity, which can be passed on through the epochs immutable and incorruptible from prehistory to present day. Yes. The Republic of Macedonia represents one of the most explicit present-day case studies of national identity construction through recourse to a major use of archaeology. A few years after the 1991 Declaration of Independence, the Iron Age origins of the Macedonians also began to be emphasized. An ancient ethnos, the Bragus, unknown, shrouded in mystery and poorly studied by the international academic world, was indicated as the direct ancestors of the Paeonians. The Paeonians were in, in, in turn indicated as the direct ancestors of the present-day Macedonians. However, in the last decade, the attention has rapidly shifted to a more recent period, to the 5th and 4th century BC, which resulted in a more suitable epoch to be depicted as the golden age of the Macedonian nation. It would have to do with Alexander the Great, no? Yes. 4th century? He died in 323? Yep. Um, Due to its utilization of ancient Macedonian heritage, the newborn Republic of Macedonia is engaged in a bitter struggle with Greece over the legitimate use of the name Macedonia and ancient Macedonian symbols. In this ongoing battle, all the possible archaeological and historical arguments are largely utilized and exploited to support each side's claims. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember in our Pride episode when we talked about that court case? Like when all those Macedonian... 
Yeah, <laughs> when the Greeks were like, no, don't, no. <laughs> a, a writ of no homo. Um, <laughs> so another example is the popularization of the archaeological li- literature is an aspect that has to be treated with the utmost attention. Outside the academic world, the question of Illyrian ethnogenesis and the debate on the ethnic origin and identity of present Albanians are extremely popular and result in myriad different documents and publications, many of which are easily accessed by a wider audience through the internet. Uh-oh. Popular archaeological literature is an incredibly powerful tool in constructing national identity because it can reach a very large audience and uses concepts and a language accessible to all. To reach a conclusion, one has to come back to the question that stands in the title of this paper, that is, who are the Illyrians? Archaeologists can try to answer this question through the analysis of the archaeological record and the written sources available for early history, but they should also try to engage themselves with the complementary question, who the Illyrians were not. The links between archaeology and politics seem to be obvious and at times even trite and banal. Then, if this is the case, as archaeologists, we should ask ourselves why there are still many open questions and unsolved problems with regard to this matter, and if some of them also condition the quality of archaeological research. Is there political bias in archaeological research? Yeah, so that's a really great article from Maya Gori. Mm-hmm. It's really important to think who is doing the archaeology, first of all, but also Who's, who's writing up the results? Who gets to interpret the findings? And if these findings are popularized for a larger audience through television or through stories online, what is the spin of those interpretations? And, and where does that, where do those stories go to, to which people, to whom? So it's, it's yeah. very fraught. Yeah. So. I have one other thing that I wanted to mention as part of an Illyrian legacy. Listeners, and Amber, although I yeah. know you have heard of this, have you heard of the term Pyrrhic victory? Yes. Yes, I know you have. Um, Stop. It is a- <laughs> Just like, oh, we're done. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening. So a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to defeat. So you win a battle, but your side is so decimated that you may as well not have won. So Pyrrhus is directly linked with the Illyrians. He was a general and statesman of the Hellenistic period, and he was king of the tribe of Molossians, of the royal Aeacid. What is it with all these vowels together? A-E-A-C-I-D. I mean, that's the, it's the same. Yeah, it's, it's so it's Aeacid. And, and he later, so he he's, belongs to this royal house, and he later becomes king of Epirus, which is a, an Illyrian state. He was one of the strongest opponents of early Rome. Some of his battles, though successful, cost him heavy losses, from which the term Pyrrhic victory was coined, sort of a dubious honor. Pyrrhus was the son of Aeacides and Phthia, a Thessalian woman, and a second cousin of Alexander the Great, uh, via Alexander's mother, Olympias. In which is why um, Angelina Jolie has that awful accent. Uh, in Alexander, what's what's her accent supposed to be? Thessalian. Uh, yeah, yeah. What does a Thessalian accent sound? Like? Uh, apparently, it sounds like a Roma stereotype. Oh no! Yeah, it's bad. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> Moving swiftly onwards. <laughs> In three seventeen BCE, when Pyrrhus was only two, his father was dethroned. 
Pyrrhus's family took refuge with Glaucius of the Tolantians, one of the largest Illyrian tribes. Um, so he was essentially raised um, within the Illyrian tribes. And so a Pyrrhic victory, uh, while earlier I, I said that it refers to some of Pyrrhus's battles, probably refers specifically to the Battle of Asculum, which we won't get into because that's not our uh-huh. thing. But it was Pyrrhus v. Rome, and it didn't end super great for any of the involved parties. So Pyrrhic victory linked with the Illyrians. Thought that was neat. Yeah. Uh, and we do have a quick book club recommendation. Uh, we will link to the World Cat citation for this book. It is Ancient Illyria, colon, an archaeological exploration by Arthur Evans. And so this will talk more about the archaeology of Illyrian sites and the types of material culture that tend to be found there. I really um, couldn't find a whole lot about the types of stuff that comes from it was really all about the um, architecture and especially the Hellenistic architecture mm-hmm. with these massive battlements and stuff, which, uh, you know, he can only talk about for so long before you're just like, yes, thick walls. Great. Um, so the gallery that we'll have a link to does have a lot of great pictures of some grave goods from um, not in Gradina, but that was really mostly all I could find. And so the Hellenistic yeah. stuff like that's like when they're occupied. Mm hmm. Like when yeah, they're so it's like not even necessarily reflective the, of yeah. Illyrian stuff. Yeah. Hmm. So who knows? Yeah. Um, but Myrta's message to us said that not much is known about the Illyrians, and that is indeed true. But listeners, we hope that now you know a little more about the Illyrians than you did before you started listening, and you've enjoyed this induct- introduction to these groups. And there's so much left to learn, which is always a cool thing. Sometimes that's the best thing about archaeology and anthropology, even if it's frustrating that there's sometimes just a tantalizing little little nugget of stuff. Oh. There's always more. Yeah. So thanks again, Myrta, for sponsoring this episode. Thank you. We learned a whole bunch. And and this is sort of like, I guess, the, the second installment in our... Yeah, in, in our lesser known tribes Yeah, like series. The, the supporting cast of the classical world. Um, <laughs> so if you listeners want to sponsor an episode on the archaeological or anthropological topic of your choice, go to the Dirtbot. The Dirtbot? Yeah, the Dirtbot. Go boop, to... Boop. To thedirtpod.com, click on news at the top of the page, and you'll see a link titled Sponsor an Episode with our silly faces as the thumbnail. Yep. And we will be back in your ears with new content next week, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. And you can watch us record at twitch.tv slash the dirt podcast. Uh, usually we'll put out a tweet when we're scheduling a recording, but also if you subscribe to our Twitch channel, so if you which if you follow you don't have yes. to subscribe. Subscribe means That's giving right. us money. You can follow no, us. No, no, you don't have to subscribe. Sorry, I misspoke. If you follow us on our Twitch channel, you'll also get an automatic notification whenever we're live. Because sometimes we don't know when that's going to be until we're doing it. So come hang out with our faces. And you can hear us goof and go on tangents that never make it to the released episode. So it's like your own little private party with, with us. Right with us. Um, yeah. You can also find us on social media. We're over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast or on Twitter at Dirt Podcast. And we're on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. And you can find all of that plus links to our store and other stuff at <laughs> our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Myrta. Thanks. Bye. 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 
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.